0: It's a pleasure to be here. My name is Lisa Igram, and it's a gift to be able to preach on, again, on the same passage that we heard from last week from Dennis. Although I have to say I think that I I won this little game because I get to talk about Jesus. We are, will you pray with me, and then we'll dive right on in. Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. Amen. So we, um, this passage, it's, you know, 202 words in the original Greek and so complex, so beautiful, so rich that it is really a gift to be able to sit in it for three weeks together. And we're following Jordan's lead and taking a Trinitarian approach. So last week, Dennis spoke on the electing father. Today, I get to talk about Jesus, the redeeming son. And then next week, Dennis will be back to talk about the elect or the, uh, sealing spirit. And it'll be great. So I want to review a little bit of what Dennis shared because I think it's important context for what we get to meditate on for who Jesus is. He talked about the electing father and we read about and we heard about and we meditated on this cosmic plan that God had put into effect before the world began, which involves our being chosen before the world began, before the foundation of the world for redemption through Jesus but ultimately also means that we get to be part of God's unification of Jew and Gentile and all creation, all things under heaven and all things under earth, um, under our one Lord Jesus Christ. And for Paul, this was an incredible and beautiful mystery. This idea that all people, Jew and Gentile, and all creation would be unified under Christ. This was a radical, unprecedented understanding of God's story in the world and it was a story that Paul had not understood before. This mystery that he talks about was a completely unexpected twist in God's story that captured Paul's heart and his imagination and really turned his life upside down. So pause for a moment and um, I I wanna ask a question. Think of uh, maybe a movie that you've seen or a book that you've read that has a twist ending. And maybe it was a twist ending that so took you off guard that it kind of like took your breath away that gave you this sudden flash of insight into the entire plot and elements of the plot that you hadn't thought of before. So maybe for example, when Lord Sith says to Luke, no, I am your father. Or the ending of an Agatha Christie novel. I remember clearly watching The Sixth Sense and my mouth dropping open in sudden realization at that moment Hopefully I'm not giving anything away, but Dr. Crow, who's Bruce Willis's character, realizes that this little boy, that he's been trying to help because this little boy sees dead people. He suddenly realizes, Dr. Crow realizes, that the little boy can see him because he's dead. I also remember getting to the end of the book, The Life of Pi, I don't know if anyone's read it, so I won't give away the ending, but the animals in the boat, who are they? Twist endings. And think about when you talked about that movie or book with friends, like you had to kind of process it and figure out what was going on here. Or maybe you told family and friends, you have got to see this or you've got to read it. It is so good. Well, this was Paul's experience, but in real life. Paul, of course, had been born and raised as a Jew, and he understood his own story and the story of Israel and the story of his fellow Jews in that day and time as a chosen nation, whose king was God himself. And Paul and Israel and his contemporaries had been waiting for their king to conquer their oppressors and set up God's kingdom on earth. Now Gentiles could join, they could could become Jews. They could claim Israel's story as their own. But in Paul's mind, the center of God's plan, past, present, and future, fully rested on God choosing Israel as his son and redeeming Israel out of slavery in Egypt and setting Israel in this land that they were to inherit and hold forever as God's people. This was the storyline, this was the plot. But then something completely unexpected and radical and disruptive happened to Paul in his understanding of God and God's story and Israel's story. There was this twist that reframed the major elements of this plot who was chosen to be God's son, and who was redeemed and liberated, and who would receive the inheritance. These elements got turned completely upside down. So you remember in Acts, as Paul is on his way to Damascus with his crew of fellow God-honoring Jews, intent on helping God's kingdom understand, uh, understand God's story and bring God's kingdom onto earth. The plot twist appears in all of his resurrection glory. It's Jesus. And Paul is blinded physically, and this moment shatters his understanding of God's story. Paul's understanding of God's story, of God's intention for his chosen people, and even of God's intention for Paul himself as part of God's chosen people was entirely rewritten through Jesus. And God, through Jesus, gave Paul new insight new eyes to see and understand the mystery that he talks about here in Ephesians 1. That Israel, yes, was God's chosen people, but God's cosmic plan for Israel was to be part of this critical chain of events by which all Gentile and Jew, all things under heaven and earth were going to be united as one family and brought into one kingdom forever. And it was through this plot twist, of Jesus Christ. From that moment, Jesus' centrality in God's story becomes the centerpiece of Paul's story and reframes how he understands all of history, past, present, and future. And we can hear that plot twist in this passage. In this passage and all throughout his letters, over and over again, Paul uses a little phrase. In this passage, in these 12 verses, Paul uses a version of this phrase 12 times and it is the phrase, in Christ. I'm gonna read this passage again for us, but I've replaced all the pronouns, the he's and him's with God or Christ, whichever is appropriate, because it's confusing. It's a 202 word sentence. There's a lot of pronouns in it. So I thought that that might be helpful for us. And as I read it, just listen for the centrality of Christ in this new story that Paul now understands and lives and shares for the praise of God's glory. So starting in verse three, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That is the plot twist. For God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in God's sight. In love, God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with God's pleasure and will. To the praise of God's glorious grace which God has freely given us in Christ Jesus, the one that God loves. In Christ we have redemption through Christ's blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that God lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, God made known to us the mystery of God's will according to God's good pleasure which God purposed in Christ. to to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In Christ we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of God who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of God's own will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of God's glory." And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked in Christ with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of God's glory. We could spend hours unpacking the phrases in this passage, um, but three weeks, we only have three weeks, so given our time, I'm going to focus on two key pieces that talk about really what it means now for Paul's story and our story to be wrapped up for God's cosmic story here in Christ, the redeeming son. And as Paul grasps for images and phrases to express the radicalness of God's cosmic story in Christ, there are two images that he uses, more than that, but two that we're going to focus on. First is the image of redemption, liberation, freedom in Christ and through Christ and his shed blood. And the second is the image of adoption, which illustrates our chosenness and our inclusion and our belonging into God's family. So when Paul and the New Testament writers were really grasping at language to articulate what it is that God has done in Christ. Throughout his letters, he and the other writers, they pull a lot from the images of like everyday life in Jewish, Greek, and Roman culture at the time to try to explain what happens. And when when all these images are pulled together, we start to get a picture of the fullness of what God has done. But they're everyday images. So for example, when we think about this idea of redemption, language like this, when we learn it here today, it gets wrapped up into our faith language. We understand it spiritually and that is awesome. And sometimes it's good to go back and look at what the context is and understand where that image was pulled from in culture so that we can gain again new insight into the nuance of what Paul was trying to say. So in the wider Greek world, this term redemption was related to the idea of release or deliverance. It has this sense of liberation about it. It's connected to the ransom of a captive or a prisoner of war who's now freed from slavery after having been enslaved because they were a prisoner of war. And as part of Israel's story, this idea of redemption and ransom was connected to God's freeing Israel from slavery in Egypt. Israel was literally redeemed and ransomed from slavery to a foreign power in the very original use of the word. But here, Paul appropriates it. And he says that we, Jew and Gentile, have redemption. We have freedom, we have liberation from our sin. We have release from slavery to sin. We are no longer captives of war. We are liberated, we are free. Here in verse seven, because of Jesus' blood. Jesus's blood it is in Christ. Jesus's blood was the ransom that was paid. Jesus's blood was the sacrifice that was made for our freedom. Now crucially freedom and liberation um, that come in this idea of redemption these are of course integrally wrapped up in this idea of forgiveness there in verse 7. And Paul says that the forgiveness of our sin is one of the incredible spiritual blessings that we receive in Christ. But in in the ancient world, the line between the physical and the spiritual is not quite as sharp as it is today. And so I think we want to be careful about relegating the spiritual blessing to something that will happen, like the forgiveness to our entrance into heaven for all of eternity. There's actually something happening for us now. The spiritual blessing, the freedom of redemption and the freedom of forgiveness is also for us now in our lived experience of today, in our physical bodies, and in our relationships with others. There's a psychologist and researcher named Dr. Everett Worthington, who has been studying forgiveness since the 1990s. And he has some really interesting things to say about both the resentments that we hold against others and about self-condemnation. Both of these mark um, they're a lack of, you know, a lack of forgiveness, either for the other or for ourselves. So it's kind of a long quote, but it's worth reading. He says, unforgiveness, resentment, holding grudges, and bitterness are not good for our physical health. Neither is self-condemnation. These sources of stress put people at risk for cardiovascular diseases and events like strokes, high blood pressure, and heart attacks. These emotional states can also compromise and dysregulate or impair our immune systems resulting in lack of ability to fight off physical diseases of many kinds. They also elevate cortisol. Cortisol is a stress hormone that is really good in responding to immediate stressors, but when it stays high, as it does when we are chronically unforgiving or self-condemning, then it affects virtually every physical system in our bodies. This includes shrinking our brains, affecting digestion, circulation, and our immune system. Resentment and chronic self-condemnation often lead to to rumination which he says is the replaying of those old memories over like B-grade zombie movies in the late late show of the mind. That's his description not mine. Rumination is related, he says, to many types of psychological problems. Depression, anxiety, stress-related problems, anger, control, and psychosomatic problems. And then he says finally, and of course, these negative emotional stressors wreak havoc on relationships. Blaming others and finding faults can set couples, families, friends, or work relationships into a downward spiral of blame and resentment. And frequent self-blame and complaint can tire relationship partners and exhaust caregivers. Now, of course, unforgiveness is not the cause of all of these physical and emotional and mental system symptoms all the time. And that's not what Dr. Worthington is saying here But what he is noting is pretty incredible, the ways self-condemnation and resentments against others can impact our physical and emotional well-being. As I read through this article, I saw some of these things for myself and I imagine some of what Dr. Worthington described might be familiar for a lot of us. We've lived much more closely with our families during this pandemic year, and that's bound to bring relational stress marked by both resentments and or self-condemnation. Maybe there are past painful relationships that are just always present in the back of our minds and pop up at the most unhelpful moments. Or maybe the bits around self-condemnation feel familiar. Maybe in the ways that we've chosen to cope with struggles that the pandemic has brought. God's lavish, gracious gifts of redemption and forgiveness through Christ's blood, the liberation and the freedom that these bring, are for us and our embodied lives on earth in the present, as well as for eternity. In Christ, God grants us the grace and strength and gives us a pathway to engage a process of forgiving ourselves and of letting go of our own self-condemnation as well as engage in a process of letting go of the resentments and anger and frustrations that we might have with others. And each week when we gather at this table to eat and drink of the body and blood of Jesus, we are reminded of Christ's blood shed to forgive us and free us. And it is because of his blood shed, it is in Christ that we can move toward finding release from self-condemnation and resentments toward others. We don't have time to go into it here, but Dr. Worthington has a great process of forgiveness if you're interested, because forgiveness is not just a one and done thing often. Um, so if you are interested, there's this process is called REACH, it's in all caps, R-E-A-C-H, it's an acronym, and you can Google REACH and forgiveness and you'll probably find it. So here, Paul uses the everyday image of redemption framed in and through Christ to talk about the freedom and liberation that we have in Christ. And this, of course, moves us to receive and give forgiveness in our present lives for today. In Christ, we have redemption. In verse 11, Paul refers to another everyday image from Greek-Roman culture, and it's the image of adoption. In verse 11, he writes, in Christ, we have been given an inheritance. And with this image, Paul picks up on an earlier and really critical image from verse five. And again, it's that image of adoption. I've talked a little bit about adoption before, so forgive the repeat, but it's such a beautiful image that it's worth looking at again. So let's unpack this concept in, of adoption in its cultural context. In the ancient world, adoption didn't look like it does today. So today when we think of adoption, we think of bringing a vulnerable child into a family to be given a home and to be given safety and a chance to be raised by loving and living parents. But this isn't what adoption was in the ancient world. In the time of these New Testament writers, adoption was initiated by the patriarch of a family who did not have a son. So the father of a family who had no one to be his heir. That adoption was initiated by the adult male, particularly um, Roman or Greek males, toward other males, adult males, to secure an heir for the family. Adoption actually happened to preserve a household. It was an adult male that was adopted, first to carry on the family name, second to receive the family's inheritance, and third to carry on the family cult or religion. Adoption was not for the sake of the son, It was for the sake of the father and to ensure the father's future. In ancient adoption, it would usually be maybe the second or third born son, adult son of another family, but never would really slaves or women or children be adopted because they couldn't give the family what was needed, which was a way to carry on the family name. But it's also interesting to note that the adopted son would retain his identity as part of his original biological family. So his biographical details, his relationships, and his story would contain both, would be, both families would be part of his story. He wasn't giving up one for the sake of the other. So here, as Paul is addressing the men and women and children and Jew, Greek, and Roman, slave and free of the local community of believers here in Ephesus, he says that all of you not just the male and freeborn, are adopted as sons into God's family in Christ. Every one of the Ephesian believers carry the name of God in Christ and receive God's inheritance in Christ and carry on the worship of God in Christ. This again is a radically new part of Paul's understanding of God's story. Israel's story was one of being God's chosen son. But now, in Christ, Men, women, and children, Jew, Greek, and Roman, slave or free, all are sons of God in Christ. All receive God's name, all receive God's inheritance, and all carry on the worship of God. One does not belong to God more than any other. All are part of the family of God. All belong to God in Christ and because of Christ. As part of my kind of day job, I've thought quite a bit with some colleagues about belonging and also a a related experience, which maybe is the opposite of belonging. It's the idea of loneliness. Even prior to the pandemic, loneliness had been described as an epidemic, both here in the United States and in the UK, and probably in other parts of the world as well. And again, as with forgiveness, research connects this experience of loneliness and of belonging to our physical health. One study indicates that loneliness is more dangerous to our health than obesity and as damaging to health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Prior to the pandemic, so this is like 2018, two in five Americans reported that they sometimes or always felt that their social relationships weren't meaningful and one in five, so 20% said that they felt lonely or socially isolated. On the flip side, friendships, which offer that experience of belonging, reduce the risk of developing certain diseases and actually help speed up recovery when we're ill. God created us to be in relationships. He created our physical bodies to be connected with each other. God both created us with that need for belonging. It's a very human need that he gave us, but he also gave us a pathway to have belonging. One of the spiritual blessings that God lavished on us in Christ is that we now have a place we can know that we belong. We belong to God in Christ. And in belonging to God in Christ, we belong to God's family in Christ. You and I are his adopted sons in the technical way that brings those blessings of adoption. We together bear his name, receive his inheritance, and carry on his worship together in Christ. We belong to the family of God in Christ and we also belong to each other. Now of course the experiences of sin, including our own self-condemnation and the resentments we might hold, sometimes these things make it difficult to experience or feel that belonging to the family of God and to each other in Christ. But the good news is that the belonging has already been given, it's already there, It's not something that we have to seek after. We as God's family are invited also to give this belonging to each other, and God in his goodness will walk with us toward a deeper knowing and experience of our belonging to his family. So in this passage, as Paul grasps for images and phrases to express the mystery, the plot twist, the radicalness of God's cosmic story in Christ, We find that what God has lavished on us in Christ is for all eternity, and it is for today. The image of redemption, of liberation, and freedom in and through Christ moves us to receive and give the freedom of forgiveness today. And that image of adoption, of belonging to the family of God, moves us to find satisfaction for that very human need of belonging in God's family in Christ, both now and for eternity. Will you pray with me? Lord God, these blessings that you have given us in Christ are lavish and overwhelming. Help us to receive and live in the freedom of redemption and the belonging of adoption today. To the praise of your glory. Amen.